We've studied so far the uh, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, starting back inside at the Ark of the Covenant, if you have your diagram there, starting inside, and we came out from God to man. What's the text? Haven't got to it yet. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, Darrell won't know what the text I'll get you in a minute. But if you have that diagram of the tabernacle, the picture, we studied it from God to man, beginning with the Ark of the Covenant, then the golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the golden candlestick, if you'll look at it, then the brazen labor, or the labor of brass, solid brass it was. It just says labor on your chart. But it was made of solid brass, by the way. It was made of the... Uh, Brass that the women use for looking glasses, for mirrors. So the, the, the ladies contributed to this, didn't they? They always do. And then the brazen altar out here at the front. And then the gates, you see the gate of the court. And we studied the uh, fence and the pillars around about it and, and all those things that you find on the uh, diagram. And uh, we gave you also a list of the materials of the tabernacle that you probably have a list of and what they represent. We're just kind of bringing you up to date now. Remember that the gold represents divinity and glory and the silver represents redemption. Remember how we pointed out that silver represents redemption? And some of you may have some notes about that. But uh, Peter says, I think it's I think it's first Peter chapter one verse eighteen for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with silver and gold. There you have the silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So the, the redemption points to the blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last time for you, who by him to believe in God that... Uh, raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Now listen, that your faith and hope might be in God. So the silver representing redemption points to Christ and His redeeming blood. And uh, we could go on and give you many other scriptures, but just to show you how that the things of the Old Testament and the silver that's found in the tabernacle, which was the foundation of the of the tabernacle itself, represents our foundation for redemption. Do you remember that the silver was used to make sockets for the foundation of the tabernacle? They were sockets of silver. And the tenons of the board were set in these sockets of silver. So the silver was the base and the foundation of the tabernacle. And therefore, it's the foundation of our faith. And, it, and redemption is, is tied in with it because we find that the silver was was really taken from the uh, money that was given for the atonement for their souls, the redemption money for every individual. And all that was taken and it was given for the tabernacle, for the service of the tabernacle, and it formed the foundation of it. So you might say that the foundation of our salvation is upon the silver or redemption that Christ has wrought for us. And all these things, we studied them from the typical point of view through. So as you look at that list of materials again, I'm just trying to remind you of what's already gone before. Uh, gold, divinity, and glory. Silver, redemption. Brass is judgment. All through the Bible, brass speaks of judgment. 
remember later on in the book of Numbers when uh, the children of Israel were bitten by these serpents and, and the Lord told Moses to make a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And everyone that would behold that serpent of brass would live. And so the judgment fell upon that substitute for them and uh, they were permitted to live. And then uh, John 3, verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so, he says, I'm going to bear the judgment for your sins. Just as back in the, in the days of Moses, he had assembled to bear their judgment. And he said, I'm going to bear the judgment. I'm going to be lifted up and bear the judgment of the cross. And thus he did. Uh, the blue represents heavenly. It's a heavenly color showing us that Jesus came down from heaven. And then the purple represents royal royalty, royal color. It, he, he was offered as a king. And then the scarlet represents blood, or it's a blood color. And he suffered as Savior, shed his blood. The fine linen represents purity. He was a spotless man. These colors uh, were used for curtains and veils and robes in the gate. All throughout the construction of the court and of the tabernacle itself, they were used throughout the fine linen. Purity. And then his sufferings are pictured in the goat's hair. You know, you have goat's hair and that pictured the sin offering. And the Bible says He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And then the ram skins dyed red speaks of devotion, but it speaks of devotion unto death and shedding of His blood. You find that in Isaiah 53 where that is true. And then also the badger skins speaks of the plainness of Christ and that He was despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 says, He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we, when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He looked like ordinary men. Except when God's glory showed forth through Christ. And then He became extraordinary, didn't He? Uh, and we find that that happened. On the Mount of Transfiguration, remember when he was, took Peter, James, and John upon the Mount of Transfiguration? By the way, if you want to place it, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9, the chapters. Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And in Luke's Gospel, it says, as he was transfigured, well, there appeared Moses and Elijah. Well, all of them say that, but in Luke's Gospel, it tells us that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So there are certain details that one of the gospel writers will give you that the other one does not. And that's worthy of notice. So anyway, the goat's hair speaks of sin offering, ramskin dyed red bloods, badger skins plain and rejected, despised and rejected of men as Isaiah says it. And then you find the, the shittim wood or the acacia wood actually is the same thing. And this speaks of being cut off. He was cut off from men. And then we find that the Spirit given uh, speaks of all uh, for the light, enlightening by the Holy Spirit. The all for the light speaks of, speaks of the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. And you find that in John 16, verse 13. The anointing oil is sealing of the Holy Spirit. See, they had all for light and they had all for anointing. The anointing oil speaks of sealing of the Holy Spirit. 
And you know, every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1, verse 13 says, In whom ye also trusted, now listen at the order, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so it became personal when you heard it, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believe, or upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So every believer, everyone who's truly believed on Christ, has been brought to that faith by God's Holy Spirit in order to do that, and thus he becomes sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what the anointing oil, I mean the sealing of the uh, oil, the anointing oil represents sealing of the Holy Spirit. There are many other verses of Scripture. Let's see, I believe there's one in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me look it up and see if I have it right in mind. In verse... uh, 22. Well, let's read verse 21, 22. Now, He which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us, see, there you have it, is God, who hath also sealed us and given us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So, that's Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And there are other scriptures we could give you, but we'll hasten on. Uh, the sweet incense back in the Old Testament. You know, you find a lot of things spoken of about the sweet incense. And we'll read some Scripture in just a moment because uh, it's, it, a lot of it's found in this 28th chapter. We can get some of the details as we go along, but I just wanted to introduce it to you. The sweet incense is symbolical of worship. Our worship is a sweet incense to God. He wants us to have this pure sense of worship. Remember, the woman of Samaria said to Jesus, well, we believe in this mountain you ought to worship. And you say in Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. And Jesus told her, he says, neither in this mountain nor over there, Jerusalem. But the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So he was speaking of true worship. And wherever it's found in any believer, it it's, comes up as a sweet incense or, or a sweet-smelling savor to God when we truly worship God in spirit and in truth. And by the way, God knows the difference, doesn't He? He knows the difference. You know, you have uh, false worship and vain worshipers, but true worshipers, God can see in the heart because God looks upon the heart. And that's what we need in every individual is true heart worship. Then we find that uh, Christ's intercession is uh, seen in the Old Testament. And by the way, we'll find that in the onyx stones. Remember, we gave you this before and we'll read... Well, let me just hold off on that till we read some Scripture. And then we'll get into the uh, intercession of Christ as our high priest because this is a priestly chapter. Chapter 28 of Exodus. Let's look at it now. I got there, Daryl. Fine. Okay, and take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So it was Aaron, the dad, the father, and then you had Nadab and Abihu, and then you had Eleazar and Ithamar, and these four were the sons of Aaron. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, and for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. 
You know, God chose men that were were wise-hearted, men that were talented, men that were capable of doing the work. And God always chooses people that are able to do the work. Now, some He has to train and some He has to begin to develop their talents and their abilities. But He chooses those kind that He can do that. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold and blue. Remember, here's the colors I gave you before. And purple and scarlet and fine linen. That's the ones I just rehearsed to you. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet, and fine fine twine linen, and cunning work. With cunning work. It's kind of embroidery-like stuff. With beauty. And I've already given you what they represent. That fine linen, pure white, fine linen, uh, represented purity, didn't it? And then you find the gold represented deity, blue, heavenly, purple, uh, kingly, and scarlet, blood, and then in verse 7, it shall have the two shoulder pieces thereof joined to, at the two edges thereof, so it shall be joined together. And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of the gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. So all these materials were used. And these materials are very important to remember. And thou shalt take two onyx stones and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Now, we've already covered these two things before, the onyx stones and the breastplate, but I think as we go along, we'll bring it back to life again because this is a context of chapter 28. It says, Six of the names of their names on one stone, and the other six names of the rest on the other stone according to their birth. Now, according to the birth of all the sons of Israel, all the children of Israel were on six names on each of these stones that were put on the shoulder pieces of the priest's ephod. What it's saying, that he's bearing their names. Let's, let's read it on and you'll see he bears it. Verse 11, With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, thou shalt engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel. Thou shalt make them to be set in ouches of gold, and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. So Aaron, the priest, was to bear these names on these two stones according to the order of their birth before the Lord constantly. Just as Jesus, uh, that was all the children of Israel, all of his family then in the Old Testament, just as all of God's family today are upon the shoulders of Christ. These are great high priests. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Bearing, he bears up, us up on his shoulders. You know, shoulder speaks of strength. God says, I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I believe that's Isaiah 41 verse 10. But anyway, you'll find that that's what the Lord does for us. Have you ever thought of where we would be without God's strength at various times in our lives? I know that, and you know that. Amen. You've got to have God's strength to endure some of the some of the big loads that are laid upon you. 
I've been trying to memorize that little poem that I used to read to you. Let's see, I got it in the back of my Bible. The load about the cross, remember? It says, God laid upon my back a grievous load, a heavy, heavy cross to bear along the road. I staggered on in low one weary day, an angry lion sprang across my way. I prayed to God and swift at His command. The cross became a weapon in my hand. It says, I slew the raging enemy, and then it became a cross upon my back again. I faltered many a league until at length, groaning, I fell and had no further strength. Here's the strength. O God, I cried, I am so weak and lame. Then straight my cross a winged staff became. It, it swept me till I regained the loss, then leaped upon my back again across. I reached the, burn, the desert, oh, the burning track. I persevered the cross upon my back. No shade was there, and in the cruel sun I sank at last, and I thought my days were done. But oh, the Lord works many a blessed surprise. The cross became a tree before my eyes. I slept, I woke, to feel the strength of ten. I found the cross upon my back again. Then, thus through all my days, from that to this, the cross, my burden, has become my bliss. Nor ever shall I lay the burden down, for some God someday will make the cross a crown. And we'll have that blessing. But strength do we need, and we need it day by day. We need it all the while. Now, uh, we read that down to verse uh, 12. And we find the names of the children of Israel were upon these two onyx stones. Uh, you say, well, preacher, you taught us that, by the way, another time or two. Probably so. And maybe you'll remember it the next time. You know, so they say repetition is the art of learning. And if you've ever been in this church very long, you've heard things repeated. So you, you should have learned something by now, right? If I've repeated it, and that's the art of learning. And you will. And by the way, that's the way I learned it too. Uh, I tell you what, old Dr. Oldham, one of my, well, the doctor, the Dr. Oldham that taught the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every time he'd start the lesson, he would rehearse what he'd said the last time. I mean, just give you an introduction of it. So you got it again. Then the next time, it was rehearsing that one. And so you eventually got a hold of it. And uh, it didn't take me long to know that I was going to hear it again. And I'm thankful for it. I'll guarantee you I'm thankful for it. Because he was a wonderful teacher. And you're getting the information that I got through him. And I owe it all to him. He's gone now. He had a heart uh, transplant and lived, what, Daryl, about five years after that, would you say? Four or five years after heart transplant. In fact, he was one of the first, and some say he's the first. I don't know. But he, he said something about being the first in some way related to the heart transplant that he had. But anyway, he made it a good while. Uh, we'll go on and read now in verse 13. Thou shalt make ouches of gold 
and two chains of pure gold at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them, and fasten the wreathen chains to the ouches. In other words, it was like uh, places to fasten the garment together. You know, we have all kinds of little gadgets now. They have hooks and eyes and various things, you know. That, so it may have been an enlargement of that kind of a thing, but it was simple, sim- similar to what we use, I'm sure. It had at least the same effect. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod. Thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine wine linen. That shalt thou make it. You know, God was very uh, direct in what He told Moses to do. He says, you make it this way. You, do, you use these materials. And you know, I don't find anywhere where Moses says along the way when he's given these this commission to the the men that were talented to do this, the wise-hearted men, that he let them vary from anything. He said, this is what we want. This is the plan, and we're going to follow God's plan. In fact, you read time and time again where it says, and Moses made everything according as God had told him or instructed him in the mount. I mean, when you come up with a blueprint and it's right, don't try to fix it somewhere along the way. I had a fellow from Plainview, not Plainview, Plano, Texas, come up here, and he had cut a, a house plan out of a newspaper, and it had the place where you could order this house plan. But he had the floor plan on just about like this little thing I gave you for the the tabernacle, and uh, and he said, uh, Brother Joyce, I want to build this house, and I showed it to Daryl yesterday. The one I showed y'all yesterday, driving around, or the day before yesterday, I think it was. Anyway, uh, he said, uh, "I want to build this house according to this plan." Now he says, "I'm going to send away and get those plans. They cost about two hundred and ninety dollars. Two hundred ninety was quite a lot of money for a house plan, those days. It's over two hundred dollars." And he said, I said, I don't want to have, I said, I, it showed the, the floor plan and the elevation. You know, the front elevation. And I said, what are you going to do that for? He said, so you can build it. I took it and I took a staple gun and I stapled a little piece of Celotex about like that where I could throw it around. I said, that's all I need. He said, are you sure? And I said, that's all I need. It takes two before's and two sixes and different things. And I said, I know where the roof line goes. I know what pitch it is and everything. I said, I don't need anything but that. And that's what I built. And he, I built it for about 60000 50 to 60000 He did some extra work around there. I think my part was about 55000 But anyway, a few years later, not many, he sold for $120,000 and moved to El Paso. But he's a real wonderful man. Good man. But uh, anyway... You want to follow a plan. If you get the right plan, follow it. Don't go messing it up, you know. And that's what we need to do in in God's Word. God has a plan for us to preach His Word and teach His Word. And we don't need to go here and yawn and go away from what God has instructed us to do. He's given us a commission. He's given us His Word to teach. Paul told Timothy, he says, Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And he said, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
But after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And every preacher has the duty and responsibility to take this book, God's Word, and preach it. Preach it. And teach it. And we don't have any right to go uh, beyond that or, or leave it out. Add not to or take from it. And so, as long as you stick to the Word, you have no quarrel with me. But when you get away from it, I've got my questions. <laughs> or whatever. What are, what are those things? What's the best word to use there? <laughs> but anyway, that's what we're trying to do here. Now, let's go on and read this in verse uh, 16. Four squares shall be, four squares shall be being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. That was this uh, this breastplate of judgment. Is right? This went around. It tied. It was upon the ephod, and it was attached to it. Is that's square? What did it say? A span. Isn't that what they use for a span? The way you do your fingers like that. I think that was it. But it's about so big, and it went on the breast. So. It says, and thou shalt, now here, verse 17, and thou shalt set in it settings of stones. Now look, even four rows of stones, the first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a, a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. So there's a three, three things there, but there are four rows of the three. And the second row shall be an emerald, and a sapphire, and a diamond. Then, and the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings. Now see, they had the same stones. They had the same names, when we read the next thing, uh, as they had on the two onyx stones that were on the shoulders. Now, in verse 21, And the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engraving of a signet, Everyone with his name shall be according to the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes of Israel. So that was on the breastplate. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains at the ends of the wreathen work of the pure gold. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold. And shalt put the two rings in the two ends of the, on the breastplate. And thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. You see, that's the way it was fastened to the breastplate with these little uh, golden chains. chains, And and the other two ends of the two wreathen chains thou shalt fasten in the two ouches and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. In other words, it was hung up on the shoulder pieces and hung here. The, you can find pictures that some have created uh, in various uh, Bible dictionaries and various other information you might find of these things that we're talking about and kind of get a picture in your mind of how it looked. Most all of them will differ a little bit from the way they present it. But we know that we got the basic idea from what, what we read here in the Scriptures. And thou shalt make two rings of gold, and thou shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate, in the border thereof, which is in the side of the ephod, inward. And the two rings of the gold thou shalt make, and shalt put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the forepart thereof, over against the other couplings thereof, 
above the curious girdle of the ephod, and they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof under the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that it and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod. In other words, this was all to bind the whole garment together. And these chains and these uh, ribbons, uh, lace of blue, all that was involved. Now in verse 29 is the key to all this that's going on that we've just been reading. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Now compare that with verse 12. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. So verse 12 says upon his shoulders and verse 29 says upon his heart. Now then, Jesus is our great high priest. And Aaron's priesthood is symbolical of the priesthood of Christ. Though there's another priesthood too, Melchizedek, we'll get into in another point, because Aaron died and Melchizedek is not spoken of as, as uh, one that died, though we know he did, but in the, in the typical, in the figurative lesson, he didn't. It doesn't show that Melchizedek died. But he know, we know he was a man and he did. But for the sake of the type of Christ, Melchizedek didn't. But Aaron is a type of Christ in this sense of the word. And he bore, uh, Aaron bore the names of the children of Israel, not only upon his shoulders, but upon the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Now, where does Jesus bear us? In heaven. Upon his shoulders for strength and upon his heart for love and for fellowship. So we're there. He, he has us represented there in heaven. He is our representative in heaven. And uh, there, the Bible says, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Not any other man, not any uh, angel, not any apostle, not any saint, but the man, Christ Jesus. And when it says there's, there's one, that means only one. Because the Bible says right before that, for there is one God the Father, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, if you say, well, there can be more than one mediator, then there, you'd have to go back to the beginning of that verse and say, well, there can be more than one God, too. We know that's not so. Let, let me give you that. First Timothy 2.5. Okay, let's look at that and see the first part of it. It says, okay, now look, it says... Uh, In verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, someone says, Well, there's more than one mediator. Well, then what does it say before that? For there's one God. You're going to say there's more than one God? You're going to say there's ten gods? Some people say, well, there's, there's two or three mediators. You know, the Apostle Peter, or maybe they're the Virgin Mary, and maybe some of the saints. No, there's not. If you say that, then you'd have to say in the first part of the verse, there's more than one God. Doesn't that make sense? You see, the Bible's very clear. For there is one God. We believe in one God. 
and, and one mediator. That means exclusively only one. There's only one God. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you try to change that around in any form or fashion and say there's more than one mediator, you're, you're uh, trying to re- rest the Scriptures, twist the Scriptures to mean something they don't mean. All right, let's get back now to Exodus chapter 28. And we were talking about verse 29. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Now, John puts it this way. He says, we have an advocate with the Father in 1 John, I believe, chapter 2. It says, my little children, verse 1, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I believe it's verse 2. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, if you see that, you can see that we have... The word advocate means like uh, one to plead our case, or an attorney, if you want to put it that way. One that's defending us. If we're children of God, we have one that defends us. And who is He? He's Jesus Christ the righteous. And we are in Him and He defends us upon the basis of His righteousness, not ours. That's good, isn't it? He, he, he defends us because He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He says that we are the righteousness of God in Him. So, He's made us righteous and therefore He can defend it us on the basis of His righteousness. And by the way, that's a, that's a closed case, isn't it? I mean, that, that wins the case. Alright? So, we've seen Him as a mediator and we've seen Him as advocate. And then, by the way, He's our great high priest. Look in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, if you will. Most of us are familiar with this. And I'm, get it? Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, please. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Now, who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. Our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. It says, let us hold fast our profession. On the basis, seeing, on the basis that we have Jesus, the Son of God, as our great high priest. Okay. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, we have one that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have not one that cannot be touched. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched. We have one that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are in all points, yet without sin. So he overcame every temptation. Then it says, let us therefore, now, because He overcame and because of who He is, and because He's our high priest, and He's passed into the heavens, because He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, let us therefore come, the word therefore is very important, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How could we come? We say, well, we come to Jesus our high priest, we come to him because he's the Son of God. We, he has entered into the heavens. He's, a, he's seated on the right hand of the Father. And furthermore, he knows all about temptations because he was in all points tempted like as we are. And he understands when we have a problem. 
Isn't that a great thing? He understands all about our temptations. It's good. You know when you have a problem, it's good to have people that understand it. It's, it's kind of bad to have someone say, I think I understand. It's good to have someone say, I know I understand. And it's good to have someone that has been there themselves. And they know what you're going through. And it's better to say, I can, I can uh, imagine what you're going through. That's all right. Because if you haven't been there, that's what you do. You kind of put it in your image or your mind what a person might be going through. But if you've been there and done that, as they used to say, you know what it's all about. So that's the kind of uh, high priest we have. So what do we have? We have, he's our, high, he's our priest. He's our great high priest. He's our mediator between God and men. He's our advocate with the Father. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He says, it is Christ that died. God is the one that justifies. So, who is He that condemns us? It's Christ that died. Well, if Christ died for us and He doesn't condemn us, who else is going to come and point their finger at you? And if they do, what difference does it make? You have a higher power that doesn't do that for you. It's Christ that died. And He came not to condemn us, but to save us. He says, I came not to condemn the world, but to save so, we have, we, have you ever heard the expression, we have everything going for us? We've got everything going for us. And it's all good. And it's going to turn out good for us because God is for us. And if God be for us, what? Who can be against us, right? So, you read the rest of Romans chapter 8 and it will be a great deal of encouragement to you. Well, let's see. We talked about some of the things of the priesthood. Uh, I want to try to hurry and give a few more things. Uh, you'll find over in the book of Hebrews that priests were taken from among men. Let's turn, look at chapter 5. You probably have it there if you had chapter 4. When I, but look at the first verse of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now, Christ did this for us. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Now, see, that's why God chose men in the Old Testament because among men, they were taken from among men that they could understand other men, fellow man. Now, Jesus had, he was taken from among men too. That's why he came down from heaven so he could be a man and in this sense, he was taken from among men. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also himself, to offer for sins. Now, he didn't have to offer sin, for sins for himself. The Old Testament priests had to offer for their own sins first, and then offer for the sins of the people. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. See, Aaron didn't take this honor unto himself. He was called of God to fulfill this priestly office. Now then, so also Christ glorified not Himself to be made an high priest, but He that said unto Him, Thou art My Son, 
Today I have begotten thee, have begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek.